0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Rob and I am so glad to be with you because I wanted to present Porn Addiction 101 Part 2 And again, this is my colleague and friend, Scott Brassert, who is the Director of Content Development for Seeking Integrity. He helps write all of our books. He writes our courses. He participates and uh, is a teacher educator online. So if you're involved with our organization, you're going to run it to Scott at some point or another. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. It's nice to be here again. Or how's this? Welcome back, Scott. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Nice to be
0: here again. So we are talking about porn addiction, and we spent the first part of this really talking about what is the problem, how do you know if you have the problem, um, what's the difference between someone who looks at porn and someone who really has a problem, what's wrong with porn, is it bad, is it good, and all that kind of stuff. And we both wanted to take some time to talk about what healing looks like from porn addiction. Before we get to that, though, Scott, there were a couple of pieces left over from the what is porn addiction part one that I wanted to cover. And I want to start with just this thought that I have that comes up a lot, which is I run into a married couple or a committed couple and the spouse says, I really don't want you to look at porn. I'm really uncomfortable with it. I would prefer that you don't look at it. Kids around, whatever it is. And I say to my spouse, well, what's the big deal? I mean, it's just porn. And, you know, I can look at it if I want, and it's not affecting our sex life, and it's not affecting my time with the kids. So what's the big deal? I want to look at it anyway. And the problem with that, and I hear that a lot, and the problem with that is not that you should look porn or you shouldn't look at porn. The problem is, is there's something going on in your relationship that upsets your spouse, and it doesn't matter whether you want it or you don't want it or you agree with it or don't agree with it. The answer to a problem with your spouse is not, well, I'm going to do it anyway, because it's not a problem for me. The answer to your spouse is, tell me why that upsets you and what it is I can do for us to work this out. That's how two adults talk to each other, not someone who's desperate to look at porn and shut their spouse up. So I just wanted to make that point because I hear that a lot. Well, it's just my spouse is the problem and I don't see the big deal. And the big deal is you're not listening to them. And that is kind of primary to having a relationship. So anyway, I wanted to get that out, Scott, before we got started. Um, we're going to be talking about recovering and healing sex addiction. So one of the first questions I have for you is, does this problem escalate? I mean, people, you know, they start out, alcoholics start with a couple of drinks, and before you know it, they're drinking several times a week, and then they're drinking daily, or they drink all weekend long, or whatever that is. And you can see that they started with a little, little and ended up with a lot. How does that work with porn addiction?
1: Yeah, porn addiction is one of the addictions where escalation is easiest to to track. I mean, to go back to the substance abuse, nobody starts out as a heroin addict. Nobody ever said, I want to be a heroin addict. Nobody. We start out with a beer, and then we're going to joints, and then we're stealing grandma's pain pills, and then we're crushing them up and snorting them. And, And before we know it, we wake up one day, and we're in an alley, and we've got a needle in our arm, and we think, how the heck did I get here? What happened? escalation is characteristic of all addictions. What happens is we build up tolerance. Um, The neurobiology in our brain, porn gives us a sense of pleasure. uh, And that pleasure comes from a neurochemical called dopamine. Our normal baseline of dopamine is about 100. It's an arbitrary thing that scientists have said. Our walking around dopamine is 100. An orgasm is 200. Cocaine is 350. There's research that shows a cocaine addict's brain and a porn addict's brain, both before, during, and after use, look exactly the same. So I'm going to suggest that porn hits us at about 350, which is more than the actual orgasm. I could be wrong on that, but it's a suggestion, and there are reasons uh, for me to believe that.
0: Well, I think part of what you're really saying is that porn is a stimulant. Oh, porn is a huge
1: stimulant. It's it's it, porn is what we call an intensity drug, like cocaine or meth. It's an upper because we get a lot of uh, adrenaline with the dopamine. But but we're what happens with porn is we're looking porn addicts are looking at porn sometimes two, three, four, five, six, eight, ten hours a day. Some of them mm-hmm. and, and days on end. The brain is used to having a, a dopamine level of 100, and suddenly it's up at 350 for long periods of time. And the brain says, this is not healthy. And so it basically has a dimmer switch and it turns down the volume on dopamine. Mm. Um, It says, nope, too much dopamine. What it does is it, it either removes dopamine-producing neurons or dopamine receptor neurons. Dopamine has to flow from one neuron to another.
0: I just, okay, so I don't understand what you just said, and I, (laughs) I, I want to understand, but let me try to interpret it. I think what you're saying is there's so much pleasure being provided and distraction that shows up in terms of your neurochemistry, that your brain kind of says, wait, wait, this is too much excitement, too much uh, distraction. And I am going to give the person less of that feeling when they're doing the same thing. And since we want to go back to where we were, and have more excitement and more pleasure when our brain is saying less and less, we have to do more. Is that kind of what you're saying?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this happens with every addiction. The brain says too much dopamine floating around. I'm going to turn down the volume. So it turns down the volume. So for me to get the same high, the same mm-hmm. pleasure, the same reaction, I have to do more of the same drug or a more intense version of the drug. Um, this is why we escalate from a beer to six beers to hard alcohol to you know, heroin eventually. With porn addicts, it's so easy to track this. Porn addicts will start out looking at what we call vanilla porn. It's just, you know, very straightforward. Uh, naked people usually don't, don't even have to be involved in a sex act. By the end, they need goats hanging from the ceiling and, you know, <laughs> seven people. And it, it's because of, they develop tolerance. The tolerance comes when, when the brain turns down the volume on the dopamine. And so they keep turning up the, the, the volume on the intensity of what they're looking at. Um, and porn addicts, in particular, end up going places that violate their values, places they never thought they'd go. They uncover elements of, of an arousal template. And, and Rob, you've, you've written about this. There's a great article by you on Psychology Today about how porn can uncover unwanted elements of an arousal template. If someone latently has something in their arousal template and then they see it with porn, suddenly it is no longer latent and hidden. It is. I I
0: want to interrupt with some more basic kind of ways of saying that is, you know, I think the article is called the porn didn't make me do it or the porn made me do it or something. You know, and what you're saying is there's this idea of if I run into things and I find them interesting, I'm going to get obsessed with them even though I never thought I'd be into them. And then they become part of my life. Even if I stop looking at the porn, I'm still interested in this particular thing. And the porn made that happen. So they blame the porn for their continuing to have this arousal. And I think what you're saying, Scott, and what we write about is that what the porn does is it reveals to us that we have attractions or interests that we didn't know about. And you know, once you take the cork out of the bottle, you can't put the cork back in the bottle. So now i become aroused by things that weren't really conscious, that weren't really, I didn't think about it. It just never crossed my mind. And now I've been seeing it. And now I know I'm aroused by it. And now I've been masturbating to it. And now I want it even once I put the porn away. So you're saying yeah. the porn didn't make me do it, whatever it is that I don't like. It right. some part of me I didn't know about.
1: Right. Yeah. The, the porn doesn't make me have a same sex attraction it lets me know that I have a same-sex attraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see this, guy, the guys come in and they, they're straight, but in, they're in a relationship with a woman, but they've seen transgender porn a lot. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they realize that there's something interesting and arousing about that. But they feel terrible about it. They don't want to look at transgender porn. They don't want to look at, at same-sex porn. But they can't stop themselves because that's where the addiction is. They need the intensity of that taboo to get the high. So they keep looking at it. And it's just this vicious cycle. But but you're right. I cannot add to my arousal template. If it's not there, um, I can see it and it's not going to do anything for me. I'm a Kinsey six. I'm 100 percent gay. No sexual interest in women. You could show me images of naked women till from now until the end
0: of time, and I am never going to get aroused by it. Well, but you might think like, well, I think, you know, what would be a better outfit for them? <laughs> but I don't really look at them as, sure, you're right. If it isn't within me and I see it a hundred times, I'm not going to be aroused by it. But if right. it is within me and I even see it a few times, it becomes interesting in ways that I hadn't expected. And it, it will become an active part of your arousal template.
1: The other thing that happens here with with this tolerance and escalation is because the brain is turning down the volume on the dopamine, we're going to go back to this. It turns down the volume, not just on dopamine when we're looking at porn, but on dopamine with our entire life. Um, So what happens is chocolate cake starts to taste like cardboard. And my wife, who I love and who's wonderfully attractive and has always been a willing and exciting sexual partner. Suddenly I can't get aroused with her. I can't get an erection or I can't maintain an erection or I can get an erection or I'm not interested. Yeah. I lose interest and it's not that I've lost interest. It's or that the addict has lost interest. It's that the addict needs more intensity, more dopamine and adrenaline, a bigger rush than a single real world partner can provide.
0: Well, I think, and without getting into the porn one, without getting to, we have to start talking about the recovery piece. Sure. And we will. But, and, and we could do a part three if we want to, <laughs> but, um, you know, what you're talking about also affects young people because there yeah. are people who really, they've not had a lot of sexual experience and then they turn up the volume on how arousing porn is. They look at more of it. They look at more intense images, all that stuff. And then they go on a date and that person's boring. Or they're not interesting, or like you said, they can't get an erection. They have erectile dysfunction because that human being can never replicate the amount of excitement that they experience looking through porn for hours and hours and hours. Yeah, the good news is the brain will heal. It will go
1: back to baseline if you step away from porn for usually anywhere from six months to a year. Younger guys heal faster, older guys take a little longer. Um, but I, I have seen porn induced erectile dysfunction. This is the term we use P I E D, uh, in guys who are 19, 20 years old. Um, mm-hmm. and it's disturbing to them because they're like, I'm 19. Why is this happening? Okay. Well, mm-hmm. you're looking at too much porn, step away from the porn for six months. Then ask me again. And, and they, they'll recover usually pretty quickly and even older guys can recover pretty quickly, but porn has to stop for that healing in the brain right.
0: to take. So, oh, yeah, if I'm saying if you say that to me and I'm saying, well, that's nice, but I can't stop. That's when you and I get involved.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we talked last time, you know, one of the criteria for any addiction is I can't stop. Um, I've tried to stop on my own. I can't. Um, and most addicts, you know, this as well as I do, would rather eat a plate of worms than ask for help. <laughs> um, so when people come to us they' they tend to be really desperate and open to, uh, receiving help, which is nice, not, not always, but, but the help is certainly there. Um, we have it at Seeking Integrity Los Angeles, which is our residential treatment center. We also have it in online work groups for both sex addicts and porn addicts. Um, I teach a lot of those, although not all of them. So yeah, you, you come to us for help. You're going to get Rob, you're going to get me and, pretty decent doses.
0: <laughs> yes. And we're not addictive because we're, we're going to be a little challenging to you. You're going to want to yeah. come close and move away because we do challenge a lot of the thinking. But, you know, this brings me into a recovery based question. And now we can maybe talk, talk about change, which is I get this a lot. Do I go through withdrawal? You know, if if I'm doing drugs, if I'm drinking, if I'm, you know, I can have emotional withdrawal, I can have physical withdrawal, like with cigarettes or heroin. Is there withdrawal from like gambling or sex? Yeah. Any
1: addiction, you're going to experience some withdrawal. Um, Alcohol and opiates tend to be the worst withdrawal in terms of physical stuff. Uh, You know, the night sweats, the potential even heart attacks. Um, A lot of severe alcoholics have to be titrated down on on, on Librium to avoid heart attacks. And they have
0: seizures. Yeah,
1: seizures, all kinds of nastiness for for um, stimulant addicts, cocaine, meth, sex, uh, porn. The withdrawal tends to be more restless, irritable, discontent, uh, a little bit bitchy, grouchy because I'm pulled away from my coping mechanism and a lot less physical.
0: And my um, brain is not getting constantly stimulated by this. And, you know, now, as you said, I'm kind of down to a hundred and <laughs> a hundred doesn't feel very good. Well, I'm probably, down, I'm probably down to about 60 because the
1: brain has actually turned down the volume, even wow. on my walking around dopamine. So I'm probably a little depressed when I get here.
0: And you know, it's interesting you say that because what I often hear from clients when they talk about their withdrawal is I feel really lonely I feel really sad. I feel like I'm longing for something, but I don't know what it is. And what they're longing for is their brain to go back to a point where they're distracted all the time. Um, So yeah, you're right. It it was stimulants as much more often a psychological addiction and not purely a physical and psychological addiction. But that doesn't mean that it isn't there. And by the way, it makes it harder to stop because, you know, if you stop something and you feel okay, it's a lot easier to stop than if you stop something and you feel awful and if you stop compulsive porn use, you're going to feel awful, not only because you've stopped using, but because now you have to deal with real life. Right. And and that that's the, the real key is, A, my, my
1: dopamine has been turned down. So I'm just walking around baseline depressed. And on top of that, my coping mechanism is now gone. So all of those feelings that I didn't want to feel like loneliness and boredom and shame and fear and anger... Suddenly, I'm stuck feeling them, and I really, really don't like it, and I don't know how to handle it. And the longer I've been an addict, the worse I am at handling emotions in early sobriety. Early sobriety, I walked around, I I cried 12 times a day. A Hallmark commercial would come on TV, and I'd start bawling because... I hadn't had feelings in like 25 years, and suddenly I was overwhelming.
0: Well, and let's face it, if you're good at coping with feelings and managing feelings and stabilizing and reaching out for help, you don't have an addiction.
1: (laughs) Right. You don't turn to add, add addictive behavior because you don't need
0: to. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love, and addiction podcast. So let me ask you this. Someone is taking, as I said, is seeking integrity online. We teach sex addiction 101. We teach porn addiction 101. We teach an empathy course for men who've cheated on a woman called Out of the Doghouse. We teach betrayal courses for people who've been through, I think it's just women at this point, who've been through profound betrayal and sexual betrayal. So if you're teaching a porn addiction 101 or 102 or 103 course, and I think that one comes in three parts, how are you directing people toward changing behavior, toward healing, toward finding some peace with this? I mean, for example, can they never look at porn again? Or, you know, what is the, how does that happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, first things first, they come in, we've got to get the behavior stopped, And that's whether it's online working in a work group or inpatient treatment uh, at SILA or just going to 12-step meetings. The behavior has to stop. Um, And that means we have to define the the behavior. What are your problem behaviors? We do what we call circle plans. Picture like a three-tiered bullseye. The inner circle is red. The middle circle is yellow. And then the outer circle is green. The, The red circle is bottom line behaviors. For porn addicts, it's looking at porn if I look at porn, I am not sober. The yellow circle is slippery behaviors, driving through certain neighborhoods or going online when I'm alone or having an argument, you know, thought people, places, things. And then the out the green circle is healthy behaviors that I can do instead, like going to 12 step meetings and going to therapy and reading books for pleasure and taking the dog for a walk and all that kind of good stuff. So, we define what addiction looks like and also what sobriety can look like. We do that very early on um, so that the addict knows oh, no porn for me. And by the way, if you're a porn addict, never. It's, it's like heroin addiction. If you're a heroin addict, no more heroin. If you're an alcoholic, no more alcohol. If you're a porn addict, no more porn. That does not mean no more sex. Um, the goal, we treat sex and porn addiction much more like an eating disorder where, you know, we can't quit eating altogether. We can't permanently abstain from food or we'll die. And we don't want to permanently abstain from sex either because sex is necessary for the survival of the species. Uh, that's why it's so pleasurable. Uh, it's We are evolutionarily wired to enjoy it so that we'll do it and the species will live. But we want to figure out which behaviors are problematic for us? Which behaviors are the equivalent for an eating disorder of re- eating an entire gallon of ice cream? Okay, we can't do that. It's bad for us.
0: I think what you're talking about is awareness that denial is a very powerful thing that allows me to continue doing what I'm doing. Yeah, this is the next step
1: ladder with treatment is breaking through the denial.
0: So let me sort of give a quick example of that, because people often wonder what is denial. It is a, a series of lies that I tell myself that make it okay for me to do this thing that actually isn't okay. I'm not looking at reality clearly. So my best example is, you know, I'm not an alcoholic. I never drink and I go to a party and I've had a few too many and I make this stupid decision to drive while drinking and I get pulled over by a police officer. Immediately, I know it's my fault. I shouldn't have done that. Why am I drinking? Got to give the keys, take an Uber. You know, I I understand the source of the problem, which is me and my drinking. And I alter my behavior because I understand what the problem is. But if you're an alcoholic, You have those drinks, you get in the car, you don't even think it's going to be a problem. Then you could be pulled over by the police and you say, well, they're always pulling people over or this isn't a good neighborhood to drive through in the evening. Or if I didn't have a red car, they wouldn't have pulled me over. So the denial for the addict is the problem is somewhere outside of me. It's not my drinking. It's the cops. It's the car. It's this neighborhood. And in that way, I don't see the source of the problem. I deny it, and that allows me to keep doing what I'm doing because it's not my fault. And that's what denial does for us. It allows us to continue do so, doing something that we shouldn't be doing because we justify the problem as being outside of ourselves. Whew, that was a good description of denial. <laughs> I'm doing that. So, Scott, I get it. We, we have to break through these illusions of what people think is true that allows them to keep going. So I'm going and I'm taking your course. I took a look at, oh, right, these are the things I tell myself to make this okay. I write them down. I understand that they're a lie that I tell myself and that I need to think differently. Then what?
1: Yeah, the next thing, the next step is we have to start identifying and dealing with the issues that drive the addiction. In, a, in an online course, we, we do more uncovering. You know, we don't do therapy because it's education. Uh, in a treatment center or with therapists, you start doing the processing. But usually it's unresolved childhood trauma that tells you the people who love you and are supposed to meet your needs are not going to do it. So addicts learn to turn to a substance or a behavior. So, so there's that part. And then the next part is developing healthier coping mechanisms. Um, We call this the green circle in the circle plan, which we talked about earlier. It's reaching out to fellow recovering addicts. It's going to therapy. It's continuing to educate yourself about your disease. It's also spending healthy, fun time with your family or your friends. Uh, It's getting a dog. It's going back to school. It's living out your life goals and ultimately, the, the goal of addiction recovery is to you know, identify it, stop the behavior, break through the denial. Yes, identify and work on the underlying issues, which definitely requires a therapist, um, but also to live a better life. So the, the end of the course, we start talking about things like uh, healthy intimacy, developing intimacy, mm-hmm. emotional intimacy, in addition to sexual intimacy, and you know, one of the good things that... that comes from recovery from sex and porn addiction. And Rob, I'm sure you can can kind of validate this is addiction feels pleasurable, but it's a one trick pony. All we get is this dopamine adrenaline rush. We don't get a sense of connection. We don't get our real needs met. Our needs, our true needs are to feel connected and, and to feel part of, with addiction recovery, sex can become something where you're sharing an experience with the partner. And instead of just dopamine and adrenaline, you also get oxytocin and serotonin and norepinephrine, these, these neurochemicals that make us feel safe and content and loved. And ultimately, that, that is what we want. So our sex lives can actually be better than ever. I, Rob, I wonder if you have thoughts on that.
0: Well, I I go back to, even before you get into sex, that, that porn is a disease of isolation. I'm sorry, porn addiction or any addiction is a disease of isolation, whether it's emotional isolation or it is more physical, like a porn addict who stays in their room. So what you're talking about getting my needs met. And I love this example is, you know, let's say, you know, and I hope it doesn't happen, but it will, you know, my dog died. And so I can go in my room and masturbate to porn for four hours and try to make myself feel better. Or I can call a friend and put some stuff up on Facebook that says, or wherever, that my dog passed away. And the difference is, is that when I reach out to people, they're going to come back with some attempt to comfort me. They're going to meet my needs for support and nurturing and comfort. Are they going to fix the fact that my dog died? No. Am I going to feel terrible about the fact that my dog died? Yes. But there is a grounding for us in human relationship when someone says, I'm so sorry that happened, or I know what that's like, or here are some pictures of you and your dog. You were so cute together. And in that way, not in, in a huge way, like using the porn and I feel completely distracted, but in small ways, I begin to reconnect to the belief that if I reach out to other people for support, that I'm going to feel better, which is not um, how I felt um, when I was growing up.
1: And there's a great, um, it's a TED Talk. Uh, people can find it on YouTube. It's called Everything You Thought You Knew About Addiction is Wrong. Um, it's by a guy named Johan Hari. And he's talking about throughout this 15 minute video, which is highly recommended uh, about the cure for addiction is not, you know, white knuckling or babysitters or enforced sobriety. It's connection. If we can connect to other people in a healthy way, if we can have emotional intimacy with other people, it makes life we don't need our addiction. We don't need the escape of our addiction because we have healthier coping mechanisms. But that doesn't
0: mean that the desire goes away. And I just want to clarify.
1: Uh, Well, yeah. I mean, in AA, they say, you know, while you're in here getting sober, your addiction is hiding in a deep, dark corner of your brain doing pushups. If we give our addiction an opening, it will come back and it will come back full force.
0: This is the why of why we encourage people to go to 12-step programs. This is the why of why we do at Seeking Integrity. I don't treat people one at a time. I treat them in a group. I teach them how to use each other for support and nurturing. Some of them, I have to say, Scott, go to treatment. And, you know, they're being honest. They're being open. They're sharing their difficult feelings. They're supporting each other. They're confronting each other. And I think for some of the guys, it's the first healthy family they've ever been in. Absolutely. And then they have the experience of, oh, people can meet my needs, not in that rush that I get from porn, but slowly, but surely. I, I had a really good friend who said a life lived in recovery is just one notch above boring. And that's not how addicts want to live. They want to move from intensity to intensity. But real life is having some good times and having some bad times. And if you're lucky, they equal each other out. And so that, that brings me to that, Scott, you know, which is how do we teach people that they're going to still have cravings and that even though they've un- confronted their denial and they've looked at their past and they've seen how it's hurt other people and they've learned to connect with others, they're still going to want to do it. So first of all, why doesn't it go away? And second of all, you know, what do I do? How can you say this course worked or this treatment worked if I still want to do it?
1: Yeah. And, and there is no cure for addiction. It's much more like heart disease or diabetes or mental illness, or a mental
0: illness, where if you
1: take your medicine on a daily basis, whatever that medicine looks like, you get a daily reprieve. And, and we're very clear about that, both at the treatment center and both in, in, in our online work groups. This is not a cure. This is not going to fix you to the point where you will never again be tempted to look at pornography or act out sexually. What this does is it makes you aware that you have a problem and it gives you medicine and a plan for long term recovery and healing, which centers around connection with other people, including Mm -hmm. other recovering addicts. You know, I still get triggered. The triggers are much less now. I'm sober 20 years from this addiction, but I still get triggered, not like 84 times a day, like in early recovery. But, you know, once in a while, I'll be like, oh my God, there I go again. With your thinking, not your actions. Yeah, yeah. And and I have tools in place. I have a plan for what to do when I'm triggered, which is, you know, walk away or use the three second rule or call somebody on the phone or go to a meeting and, and the triggers lose their power, but I'm still an addict. I'm always going to be an addict.
0: Well, and and I want to say what that means by always being an addict. It means that my first thought on some level, when I'm upset, I'm dysregulated, something has gone really wrong, or I'm really excited about something good, my first thought may be, hmm, how can I go look at some porn? <laughs> yeah. But then recovery and all of the work that we've just talked about... Uh, is the moment in my brain where I say, well, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, there's something going on, but that's not going to help. So I want to act out. I want to look at the porn, but that's information. That's information that I need to connect. I need to call people. I need to reach out. And that's where the social aspect of the work comes in. And, you know, I want to say to folks and say to you, you know, I really appreciate Scott, that when you're teaching these courses, you're encouraging interaction you're encouraging people to do homework and talk about that and write about things and read about things, but then they have to talk about them. And when you start identifying with someone who has the same kinds of problems as you do, you know, all of your um, fears that what are they going to think of me and I shouldn't talk, you know, it kind of gets released. And you're talking to people who, whether you're a post postman and they run a, they're the CEO of a company, what you have in common is the problem. And making sure that people don't re-enter the problem and find another way out is what those connections are for. It is all about relationship.
1: Yeah, and and you know, at the end of a work group, and and I, you got, I know you guys get the same re- reaction at the end of you know three four weeks of treatment. Is yes, this information it was all brilliant and useful and helpful. But what really helped me is making some connections and now having some people I can turn to when I'm struggling, some people who understand me, some people who understand my problem. So I'm no longer alone in the world with my shameful, shameful porn use or or whatever it is that I'm trying to get rid of.
0: I um know that we're running over time and people only have so much time for these kinds of interactions. So let me tell you, you can reach Scott at Scott at seekingintegrity.com, And he's always uh, available to drop a note or help make a referral or kind of a book or whatever it is to support you. I mean, all of us are available to reach out to in one form or another. I think Scott, you also do support sessions where you might talk to someone right. for a half hour or 50 minutes, not as a therapist, but as a guide, like a coach to help them take their next steps. You do those, right?
1: Yeah. And and people can sign up for both the individual support sessions and the work groups on the same page. Go to seekingintegrity dot com. Click on work groups and it takes you to a landing page with all the stuff you can you can sign up for.
0: I want to thank you again, Scott, for doing this. And, you know, I know how busy you are because we keep you really busy. (laughs) But this is information that's going to be really helpful for people. And, yeah, I do hope that you go online and take a course and learn something. You know, it's good to read a book. It's great to listen to a podcast. But there's something about sitting with other people and learning and talking about these issues that you just can't replace. And, by the way, if you can't take a course, go to a 12-step meeting. Go to a therapy group. Go find people who struggle with this where you will get the kind of support you need without shame. And I hope that what you're hearing in these recordings and the way that Scott and I talk to each other, there is no shame. You know, it's just, we're talking about problems, we're dealing with problems. They happen to be sexual problems, but we could be talking about food or alcohol or drugs or any other emotionally driven addiction because it isn't about shame. And by the way, you're not going to shame yourself into recovery. It is about letting go of all of that and finding peace. And Scott, I want to thank you for bringing so many people peace in the work that you do. Let me ask you this before we stop. I think you've done a little writing of your own. Can you tell us a little bit about how people can read or look at the things that you've done?
1: Sure. I have a, a couple of books. Um, one of them is a daily reader for sex and porn addicts. It's called Sex and Porn Addiction, Healing and Recovery. Um, it's, it's a daily reader, but it's not one of those uh, meditation guides. It's not all... Out in the ether, woo woo. Um, it's a little more it's not practical.
0: 17th century poetry for recovering addicts, is what you're saying.
1: Yeah. yeah, It's 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 a very practical daily reader. And then I co-authored a book called Life Anonymous: Twelve Steps to Heal and Transform Your Life uh, with my friend Kristen Snowden. She is not an addict. I am, um, but we've both worked the twelve steps, so we took turns writing about each of the steps. Um, so if you're not an addict, this is actually a great book for you to pick up uh, if you want to understand the steps and maybe even benefit from working them yourself.
0: You know, it's funny that you say that because I got to say there are so many people say I would never want to go to a twelve step program. I'm so glad I don't have those problems. I wouldn't want to spend time there. But I've also worked with some people who are really troubled and struggling, and they say, "I wish I had an addiction so I could go to those support groups." And um, there are always ways to lead yourself toward connection and 12-step, and the work we're doing is one of them, but there are just so many. You can always reach out to me at rob at seekingintegrity.com, scott at seekingintegrity.com. We may not have an answer for you, but we can point you in the right direction. Again, Scott, and, um, and to all of you, you know, we are really dedicated to making these podcasts an opportunity for you to grow and learn without paying for it and dealing with things that you don't hear most places. So I hope that this is helpful to you. Pass it on to a friend and let us know how we can improve our work. Have a great afternoon or evening, and thanks for taking the time to listen. Bye for now. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com.